John Gerdner is a journalist and historian whose stories on science, technology, and nature have appeared in a host of national magazines. Since 2003, he has worked mainly as a feature writer for the New York Times Magazine. He is the author of The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation, and The Ice at the End of the World. A frequent lecturer on technology and science history, Gertner lives with his family in New Jersey. John Gertner, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Mia. Nice to be here. The amazing experiences that you recount into the ice at the end of the world, you've chosen a, a passage that I think conveys uh, some of that wonder just for our, our listeners to experience through your eyes. Sure. In my reporting on Greenland, I at one point spent a week camping out at a glacier with two scientists, David Holland and his wife, Denise Holland. And I think this captures a little bit of what it was like. We stayed right by a glacier known as Jakobshavn, which is actually one of the fastest moving glaciers in the world. And, and one of the, the largest in Greenland, like a lot of glaciers in Greenland, it's coming apart. It's moving lots of ice off of Greenland and into the ocean. And that in turn is raising sea levels. But I'll just sort of explain what it, a little bit of what it was like to sort of be there, both as a journalist as a, and with some scientists, too. Camping by Jakob Chauvin's calving front is akin to camping on a spot overlooking a river, except in this case, the river is many miles wide and clogged with both large icebergs and shattered ice, the latter of which is so profuse that it forms a frozen stew known as melange, which covers the fjord waters here. The sun never sets in summer. The visitors watch the glacier's calving front with a constant sense of expectation. It rumbles ominously sometimes during the night with a sound like distant thunder. In daytime, it tends to emit an occasional and sharp rifle crack, the recoil of a split somewhere deep within itself where the evidence that a small chunk of ice has been shed. Though the calving front seems high at 300 feet, the glacier actually descends below the melange and the fjord another 3,000 feet or so. Jakobshavn is among the deepest fjords and glaciers in the world. Therefore, a true calving event, one that cleaves the glacier from top to bottom, is bigger and more explosive, not a rumble, not a crack, and unleashes the energy of several atomic bombs. One morning a few years back, David and Denise Holland awoke at 3 a.m. and had the good fortune to capture on video the breaking of a massive iceberg that measured twice the length of the Empire State Building. It was very noisy, very spectacular, David recalls, and we were impressed. The glacier's riverbanks, instead of sand or grass, comprise a hilly moonscape of dust and rocks, ranging in size from skipping stones to boulders as large as refrigerators. Decades before, the big stones must have been moved about effortlessly and then left behind by the retreating movement of the glacier. In fact, this area happens to be called new land. That is, land that was covered in ice as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, but has now been unveiled thanks to the recession of the ice sheet and glacier. Gray, colorless, and devoid of vegetation, new land is grim. Tens of thousands of years ago, when glaciers retreated from Northern Europe and North America, many parts of the world look like this, a place that exists before life arrives. As it is, new land makes simple tasks unpleasant. When a wind blows down from the ice sheet, microparticles of till, a fine rock flower ground down by the glacier, kicks up into the air. 
A film of grit descends on the lenses of eyeglasses, on the keys of a computer keyboard, on the skin of a boiled egg at breakfast. It settles on the cusps of your molars. Meanwhile, the dry lunar wastes of new land seem even stranger in contrast to what's around. The sound of water flowing and rushing circles the campsite. It comes from rivulets that trickle down the edges of the ice sheet a few hundred yards behind the campsite, as well as from fast-moving rivers in front of the campsite, hidden from sight, which run a few hundred yards down the hill and pulse under the edges of Jakobshavn's glacier itself. What seems like wind, in fact, is just water running, far off and nearby, hard to place but difficult to ignore, an enormous, unceasing white noise, which is merely the sound of ice melting, all day, all night, everywhere. I don't usually like to use that word, but I can say that it's awesome, in a true sense, to, I mean, how did that transform you, just the writing of this book, those experiences, to realize these things when you're talking about the glaciers, the second, you know, there's two ice sheets in the world, and, and just to, but to see it, to be there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, in some ways it's it's the grandeur of, of a country like Greenland and the sort of monumental shape and size of nature that you confront when you go there. I'm not going to say it makes writing about it easier, but you, you do have a sense that there's so much to sort of capture. And in some ways, you know, I was spending, among other things, I, in that passage I just read, I was spending a week really doing nothing except looking at ice melting and breaking and talking with scientists who were trying to get a better understanding of what was happening. And uh, I think in some ways, one of the challenges for me and for really, I think for a lot of writers who write about climate change is that it's so big as an issue and Greenland is so big. And even this one glacier and Greenland has, you know, thousands of glaciers this glacier is so big, it almost boggles the mind. So, you know, you realize you're trying to sort of capture something and hopefully by capturing something representative, something that, that like a Jakobshavn glacier that represents something much larger, which is this sort of warming of the world that's sort of moving vast quantities of ice off of the ice sheets into the ocean, raising sea levels, affecting towns and cities all over the world. I think that that in some ways sums up the challenge. How do you kind of approach something so big and find something particular that you can hopefully capture? But I, I hope I can capture a little bit in, in those pieces. But for me, it was easy to get a kind of sensory overload going to Greenland, you know, because the ice sheet is, you know, thousands of miles long, north to south, and hundreds of miles across. So the, the challenge in many ways is, how do you tell that story? And there's so many stories to be told about climate change, stories of culture, stories of, you know, fossil fuel extraction, stories of pollution, stories of now heat waves and forest fires. So I was telling the story of ice, or at least some small part of that story, and the constant tension within me and within the book is, you know, how do you try and capture it? And how do you try and make these sort of systems of ice and water and rock and atmosphere feel urgent to readers, to, to people? Well, it is urgent, even though it seems so far away and most of us won't get a chance to visit. I think you've written that it's Greenland is no longer changing in geological time. It's changing in human time. You can see, you can go back 10 years, 20 years and see huge differences and that affects us here, wherever you are 
And so I think that you you do bring across the story and the history as well, going over the hundred and fifty years and you know early explorations and it's it's really a, a fascinating story, even going back uh, hundreds of years. I remember first thinking about Greenland when I encountered that book, which I'm sure you know as well, and uh, by Jane Smiley, the Greenlanders. Just thinking um, that that was a novel about climate change, but going back further in time. But just tell us a little bit, and I do want to go into the history and the the different explorations now and and historically, but just tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a journalist and book author um, telling these historic accounts as well. I mean, I became a journalist, I guess, just a few years out of college. And I think if, if you had told me then that I was going to end up spending a lot of time up in Greenland writing about climate change, I would have been quite surprised. I was always interested in science, but for me, I kind of came in sort of the back way. If we go back to when I was beginning in journalism in the 1990s, climate change was sort of just beginning to get some of our attention. And some of the issues at the time, for instance, were a little bit more like acid rain or pollution or species extinction, things that are still really important today, but they weren't necessarily on the top of my agenda. And more for me, I began writing a bit about business and technology. That was sort of what interested me most, I think, the first as a way of looking into this. And my first book was a book about Bell Laboratories. I had grown up in New Jersey, and Bell Laboratories was like the great invention factory. It was where a lot of the technologies of the 20th century that changed the world came out. And I originally was going to write a book about Bell Labs and sort of chronicle all these great inventions, the transistor, the laser, communication satellites, all these things that were invented in this one place that really went on to change the world. And in writing that book, I also found a way that I could I could write about the book, but I could write about something a little more general, which was not just write about the inventions themselves, but write about the process of innovation and how people come up with new ideas and translate those new ideas into products or, or processes that in turn kind of spread around the world and change culture, society, and economies. And so that was one aspect to me, I think, that made an impression, one, that, that a book can be historical, that it can chronicle a certain era, but it can also be something a little bit more general or deeper, that it can kind of explain something that people could say, well, that's a book about Bell Labs, but it's also a book about innovation. After I was done with Bell Labs, I really did want to write more about climate change. And climate change was important to me. I had written a lot about technology. As we know, I mean, the way to sort of address climate change in in certain ways beyond our politics, beyond our economics, beyond our personal behavior is to come up with technologies that obviously can make it so that we can use clean and renewable energy or other things that will reduce our footprint. And when I was writing about climate change, I sort of became more and more interested in some of these catastrophic projections that were really starting to, I guess, personally upset me but also captivate me. How bad are things? How bad can things get? And this kind of circles back to that question of, okay, well, how do you tell that story of climate change? And and for me, it was, how do I tell a story that interests me enough to do a book? And books can take a very long time. I think my Bell Labs book took five years, and my Greenland book took about five or six years. And so For me, as I began to think about Greenland, I started to think about sea level rise and melting glaciers and melting ice. And it seemed like a way to tell part of the climate change story. But 
as I discovered with the Greenland book, I could also tell a story about the process of discovery. Whereas if the Bell Labs book was a book about the process of innovation, discovery is a little different. It's sort of when you find out new things about the world, and then what, what do you do with that knowledge? And so for me, writing about Greenland was a sort of exploration of a couple of different questions. One, how do we know what we know about the ice sheets, which is in a way, how did we discover climate change? What was that process like? Because really, I think it's one of the great achievements of modern civilization that we understand climate change. We understand what causes it. We understand, too, how to address it. The tragedy is that we're not doing that, but that's a separate story. So for me in Greenland, it was a way to look at that history of how we added to our knowledge piece by piece. But then on a very just experiential level as a journalist, it was just a wonderful story to meet these incredible characters who had both historically as well as in the present day done some really risky scientific work to explore both the contours of the ice sheet, the surface, to explore the edges of the ice sheet, which would have been the glaciers, and also to drill down into the ice sheet, which is a big part of trying to understand the deeper history of the ice sheet. Because the ice sheet is really built up of thousands of layers, really hundreds of thousands of layers of snowfalls that have compacted. And early on, about 50 years ago, actually more than that, 70 years ago, scientists began to understand that you could drill down and pull up a core and use scientific technologies to understand how ancient climates were like and how they compare to today. So for me, Greenland was all those things wrapped in one. And, and that for me made it a kind of it made those five years of, uh, of work on it kind of bearable because I was, I was constantly interested. It was, it was just a fantastic experience. I, I can only imagine, and I think that it would, if we could all experience it, it would just make our understanding of what we're doing to this planet, just bring it home, just to see that these are, and they're breaking away. And it seems, you know, it's strange because the numbers, I love to hear the data because it helps us understand, but the numbers when you talk about the sea level rising a millimeter, you know, millimeters, not that much, you know, two millimeters, but it's huge incrementally and it can then be sudden. That's right. I mean, it, right now, the notion that, oh, you know, sea level rise isn't that bad because I think altogether now it's between three and four millimeters per year, which is, you know, a very small amount. And about a third of that is coming from Greenland. Some of it's coming from Antarctica. Some of it's coming from glaciers in other parts of the world. And some of it's coming from as the world gets warmer, the oceans just expand because of some, you know, thermal expansion is, is the term that scientists use. And it's true, exactly what you said, that it doesn't seem like a lot and in many ways it might not be a lot but year upon year it adds up and more importantly I think the expectation and I think it's okay to say the certainty at this point is that this is accelerating and that there are these kinds of futures that we're looking at where things don't just happen incrementally I think it's a human nature to sort of say well the rise in sea level is going up at this steady clip and we don't necessarily see these exponential kinds of increases when, for instance, a big glacier just suddenly collapses, or when in Greenland there's a huge event of melting because a heat dome forms over the island, and then there's massive melting and all that water spills off the sides. And in Antarctica, for instance, there's a very large glacier, a glacier so large that's about the size of Florida called Thwaites that is believed to be very unsteady and, you know, could, could literally raise sea levels by several feet this, this century. 
So there is this specter. I have a glaciologist friend who says, in his words, he says, I try to tell people the sky is falling and it really is falling. It just hasn't fallen yet. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's hard to get attention sometimes to just sort of say, look, these are the projections and they're grounded in really good science. But, but to translate that into urgency in politics or policy is very difficult. It was really eye-opening to me to read about all the statistics and the histories of Greenland in relation to what's happening in the present day. So when you're thinking about climate change and the history that you studied of Greenland, do you think that there's a way for us to learn from our past to try to save our future and what's happening currently? It's a great question. It's something I think about a lot. And I think in many ways that probably captures what drives me as a writer. I mean, there, there are so many different kinds of writing to do about climate. And for me, I kind of look towards history to sort of understand how we got to the present day. So I think there's probably a couple things we're saying that one, our history can explain, I think, a lot of how we got here and what we know. I don't think it can necessarily tell us how to proceed. I mean, I think there are some things we can take out of it, such as, say, a respect for nature in some cultures, for instance, a respect for long-term thinking that come out of sort of Native American cultures or Inuit cultures or other indigenous cultures that's, I think, very different from how we live today. But I do think in many ways the future is really difficult because we have to make it up and we can't look to history. What we have is a sort of problem that's so big and so existential and so difficult to solve that we need really the entire world to get together and solve it. And I don't think there's anything in our history that sort of prepares us for what we have to do next. So, you know, I think we have a lot of promising signs where a lot of not just companies are sort of making these zero pledges, but, you know, countries of the world are trying to come together and set some sort of guidelines for carbon emissions. But it seems like the real work is still ahead of us. And to me, it feels that we're making this up as we go along. We've made a couple good steps. We know the problem really well. We know what to do or what, at least what's needed. But those, those questions of policy and politics and how to kind of mobilize governments and how to align people. And, and at least to me, it seems like the world has gotten more contentious, maybe because of the pandemic, rather than more willing to sort of align. So that gets into the question of optimism. But I think, you know, history is super important. It doesn't give us a roadmap, but it, it, it's given us a great understanding both of, of what we have to do and how we got here. And I think it gives us a kind of sense, too, of the, the value of some of these places that we might not normally think of otherwise. I'm Lila Moskowski, a student at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, and a collaborator with the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. John Curtin's approach of tying history into the discussion of climate change is fascinating to me because it allows the reader to understand the origins and evolution of environmental shifts that were precursors for what we are seeing today. It creates a closer connection to those events. Gertner's The Ice at the End of the World was particularly interesting to me because I designed an environmental history course for high school juniors and seniors for my senior project in high school. I studied books that explored climate change's effect on history and learned about how different cultures dealt with climactic events, some prospering while others failed. 
I also reflected on what we can learn from these histories in our current state of global warming. While I never studied Greenland during this project, I did find that in many cases, history repeats itself. Learning about climate change through the lens of historical accounts is a topic that I am captivated by, and I hope to continue studying and expanding my knowledge on it in the future. Additionally, Gertner's career as a journalist who focuses on science and the environment is important to me because, as an English and biology major, I'm constantly trying to find ways to combine the two subjects to create awareness of the Earth's current state of peril. Gertner plays a crucial role in telling the world about these major historical and contemporary events through all of his works, and I hope to be able to do the same in my future career. My name is Panasara Jajankit, and I am one of the associate producers for this episode of the One Planet podcast. Listening to this interview while editing left me in awe of the work and scale that went into Ice at the End of the World. I found Mr. Gerdner's discussion of structuring glacial change as not just a climate change story, but also a history of climate change knowledge, a critical point of insight for communication. Focusing solely on climate issues often makes stories sound like they have an agenda or sound too preachy. But by weaving in history to form a cohesive story, the book puts focus on the people involved rather than endlessly highlighting the effects of climate change. Many stories also focus on doom and gloom, which only paints the issue as unsolvable and as a point of despair. Mr. Gerdner's optimism towards technology and towards the knowledge we have gained about the climate crisis is inspiring. I'm excited to learn about Gerdner's work and Ice at the End of the World and how we are all connected even to faraway glaciers in Greenland. And now, back to the interview. Your book certainly also profiles these courageous stories, and it gives us examples of the courage and fortitude and resilience. But yes, speaking of the world coming together and, you know, COP26, what are your hopes and expectations? I mean, I I think, you know, it it depends which week you you ask me. (laughs) Some some weeks are more hopeful than others, and I I don't think that's unusual. I think think some journalists feel a lot of skepticism, I think. Uh, We've been waving our arms in many ways, saying, you know, pay attention for for years. And as just an example of this, um, you know, we're reading here in the U.S. about these incredible temperatures on the West Coast right now, and the drying of the West and the emptying of these reservoirs And, you know, it came to me that about 15 years ago, I had written a very, very long story about the American West that sort of foretold a lot. And and I don't bring this up to sort of, you know, I wasn't the only one writing those stories. So we've had many, many years where really, you know, scientists, environmental community, certainly politicians who are, you know, aligned with the environmental community and journalists have, have sort of been aware of just how bad these problems can get, whether it's drought, wildfire, species extinction, biodiversity problems, melting of the ice sheets. And, you know, we haven't made that much progress. So that said, there there have been these bright spots, whether it's, you know, the Paris Accords. I've also, as I mentioned earlier, I, I find it optimistic that a lot of private corporations, which also give money and influence politics, have made, for instance, Microsoft or Google or Apple, these global tech companies, Amazon too, have made these kinds of pledges for net zero. We'll have to see if it actually, if there's a follow through there. But, you know, I 
I w- I'm not going to say I'm cautiously optimistic that we will kind of inc- continue to move along this path. In my book, there was a scientist, Eric Regnault, who said, if you look at history, we do act when our backs are up against the wall. When things get so urgent that we have to do something, we do. So that is, I think, my expectation now. So, you know, we'll have to see in the next couple of decades, I think, if we can really act fast enough and urgently enough and broadly enough. But certainly, like, the Paris Accords are a a very good first step. They're not enough, not nearly enough. And so, you know, to go further and faster is really the race right now. And, you know, you can find different groups or members of the environmental community that are stressing different kinds of solutions. My own feeling is that technology has to play a very crucial role. But one thing that will, I think, be most tragic of all is that if we don't actually do more or do enough to address climate change, it won't be because we didn't know. It'll be because we looked at a problem that was solvable and we didn't solve it. A problem that was solvable with all our money and with all our technology and with all our intelligence and with all our insight, and yet we decided that we just couldn't do it. With all our technology, I mean, you've covered an area that's a little bit controversial, but I mean, obviously there's positive uh, geoengineering with the carbon capture, and then there's others that might be a little bit more controversial. That's exciting, but again, we have to deal with caution as well. Yeah, and and I think it's probably worth addressing that. When I say technology, mostly I think of, you know, solar power, wind power, using renewable energies. I think what we think of as conventional clean energy technologies, changing our transportation systems, changing the way we, we heat our houses and cool our houses, changing the way we use industrial processes. Then we get into sort of these much, I think, riskier and more controversial ideas. And I I wouldn't call myself a proponent of those. I I hope we don't ever have to sort of use geoengineering or other kinds of aspects. What I do think we probably will need to do is take carbon out of the air, which isn't really, you know, geoengineering is often described as, you know, let's put an umbrella of particles over the atmosphere to block out the sun. And, And that's a very complex, controversial, risky, I think, to some extent, or at least unknowable kind of process. But we know how to take carbon out of the air. I mean, we can do it through trees. We can do it through growing plants. We can do it through other processes. There are more technological means that we're just starting to understand. And I think those might play an important role to get us closer to a livable climate. But, you know, the most important thing really is just to get rid of fossil fuels and, you know, just keep doing everything we can to stop burning oil. On the positive note, I mean, I was, I'm an optimistic person, you know, I'm also an artist, so we had kind of like a dreamers, but I've had so many illuminating conversations with people who are really living it, like Hans Josef Fell in Germany, who lives a 100% sustainable lifestyle, and I'm sure you know his story, and he lives mm-hmm. in this house, it's all, you know, everything, what he drives, what he, he lives, it, and he says that we can get, I mean, he's a parliamentarian, so he's not just a fantasist he says that we can get to a hundred percent renewable energy in 10 years i mean obviously following uh, very strict changes and diet and he has a whole roadmap mm-hmm. for this so i just want to bang that drum and share it because well you know he, he's pretty you know been efficient at you know <laughs> implementing some station around the world but i mean you must have met some inspiring people too um, on this line 
Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, that would probably be optimistic in my view, but, you know, it'd be, it'd certainly be interesting to sort of hear him make his case. And it's, it's, as, as we know now, it's very hard to get people to change their, their lifestyle sometimes to change their personal choices, to change, to be, to be accepting, I think, of different policies and not suspicious, but at least, at least some numbers that I think of seem more doable here in the United States would be something like 80% renewable energies or clean energies by 2050 or 2040. If we could do it by 2030, that would be tremendous. But 100% seems like it might be very difficult. And even these kinds of timetables for doing things that that 80% mark are very ambitious and they require you know, certainly like uh, very strong policies, I think, on the part of government. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to, to a whole spectrum of people from, you know, ardent environmentalists who are very intent on sort of solving the problem through natural means, you know, that, that we don't necessarily need any kind of sort of technology beyond what we have now to do it, to people, as we mentioned, who think geoengineering is a solution. And, you know, I try not to, to take sides. I try to sort of engage with those ideas. And what I think, again, I keep coming back to is like, you know, the, the absolutely basic fundamental thing is just to stop taking oil out of the ground and stop burning it. And beyond that, we can have a lot of different debates over what to do next. But if we can stop doing that, then, then we're going to be in better shape. Yeah, and you've mentioned some of the controversy and how to change people's views. So I was wondering if you've ever encountered climate skeptics in interviews or when you're on tour, and how did you deal with or respond to them? Yeah, I have a few times, and sometimes sometimes I've been on on like call-in radio shows or television shows, and you'll get a kind of skeptic who, who who wants to sort of say, you know, dismiss at least what I'm saying about the, the threat and sometimes dismiss what I might be saying about the solution. It, it's hard. Sometimes I, I find it upsetting. I mean, as a journalist, you want to have a thick skin and not get uh, rattled sometimes by somebody who t- who's telling you you're, you're, you're crazy or you're silly or your ideas are bad or something like that. You know, one, one good thing about being a journalist is sometimes you're, you're just reporting a lot of times. You're saying, well, you know, this company is working on this solution, and I'm writing about it as a kind of observer who's, you know, kind of looking at it in a rigorous way and asking if what this company or this person is doing or suggesting is possible. But I think it's it's hard to change people's minds. I really do. Climate change, I think we see it kind of increasing, as at least as long as I've been a journalist, we've seen it increasing in its urgency or at least in Americans' views as, as being a problem and for some being an urgent problem. And, you know, when I think if I went back 15 years ago, it wasn't listing that high up on these kind of polls on where people thought about it. And that to me is encouraging. So I don't know if it's, I think some of it's evidence of just a younger group of Americans who are much more conscious of these environmental issues, kind of, you know, reaching voting age and reaching adulthood who are sort of bringing that. And that gives me a lot of hope, I think, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, Greta Thunberg and some of her popularity and the way she sort of mobilized people and young people around the world, that too gives me some optimism. So in terms of changing older people's points of view, if they're very skeptical of climate change, I don't know if that's possible. But I think that's increasingly unnecessary because basically they're kind of going away. Now, the one place they're not going away is like the United States Senate. 
if our politics reflects our populace, you know, if, if our politics sort of carries that same urgency that people are feeling in a more general sense, I think we'll be in much better shape. It would be so nice. I mean, of course, Biden is doing and a whole, you know, group of politicians who are really proactive on that can't be underestimated. But it would be just so lovely to see some of these these subsidies, you know, just to have they're just unfairly subsidized. Just to have like an even playing field, an even competitive playing field. I know there have been some nice subsidies for green energy and things, but and we're seeing them now, but it just doesn't make sense to subsidize fossil fuels. I mean, I I'm, I dream of one day we're going to look back and we're going to laugh and people will have to explain it. You know, we took this stuff out of the ground and we burned it and it killed us. <laughs> you know, 8 million people a year and air pollution, all these things. And they'll, they'll laugh. They'll think like... How strange. What a, what a very weird world it was. So that, that's my hope. You know, it's interesting because we've been having conversations. As you say, the, this younger generation is very willing to make the sacrifice of, let's say, their individual rights for the collective. And I think that, you know, the way we thought about things before, we thought it was all about individual rights. So the idea of one's freedom you know, freedom to pollute the planet and not thinking about how that affects other people or even the next generation. But the, the thinking has really changed. And I think uh, we've even seen, it's interesting because we had an interview the, the other day with uh, about socialism uh, with Richard Wolff. And he said that even Republicans polled are, open, because I think it's all related, you know, socialist principles and the willingness to come together for the collective. And, and, and Richard Wolff said that actually even Republicans polled said they're open to socialism and I thought that's very strange and it's just that he that they feel perhaps that capitalism isn't serving them and uh, mm-hmm. so they're open to other solutions and so that, that's certainly an interesting uh, thing to hear and I, I feel that that does make me hopeful yeah yeah for sure I, I, I think people respond to leadership I mean in climate and it's sometimes hard to make the case that, or it has been, I think, hard for someone like Al Gore to make the case for climate 15, 20 years ago. I don't think it's that hard to make that case anymore. And, you know, that that sort of evidence and that kind of urgency is there. So, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before of, of turning that kind of sense of urgency, that sense that the, the future is not going to meet our expectations if we don't really act decisively. I mean, it's certainly gotten through with the younger generation. You know, it, it hit me quite a long time ago, but then again, that was something I was thinking about all the time. And people have busy lives, complicated lives. They're thinking about things much different than climate. But to sort of start to see it invade all their other sort of aspects of their life, whether it's their home values because sea levels are rising in the beachfront community or wildfires are encroaching on their neighborhoods or their agriculture, local agriculture is is failing because of heat waves or drought, when you start to see it as kind of woven into your local economy and your local culture and a threat there, I, I think it becomes much more kind of, okay, I get it. I get it. It's necessary to move on that. 
And what you do is so important as a writer, as a journalist, and I believe in journalism as advocacy. And we just people need to to know. And so I, I'm so glad to see the increase in coverage. And I believe it, a kind of positive coverage, not so much about doom, but it's kind of like giving people the tools that they need. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was talking to a class of students, of journalism students, a few months back. And they asked me, you know, how can you cover climate change because it's so depressing? You know, there's all, you know, it's just one tragedy after another. And, you know, you're watching ice sheets melt and wildfires burn and you're, you're sort of looking at projections for, for a cent, the future that, that look very grim. And what I did say is, you know, I did spend a lot of years working on those kinds of stories, but I have over the last few years looked I think increasingly at stories that are about solutions and you know whether it's solutions for taking carbon dioxide out of the air through technology or other kinds of solutions I think that's been important to me I think as a journalist to say you know it's not like we don't have options we really do and I, I don't necessarily think of it as I mean some people think of it is advocacy journalism. I, I, I guess I, I would say I, I do have more of a point of view, and, and that would be my point of view, that, that it's worth covering these things. I'm not sure personally as a journalist I could say anything new by just sort of reporting on the endless cycle of drought or fire or, or melting ice. Although those stories still do interest me, and I may do them again, that we are at a moment where we, we are really looking at solutions, whether they're political, policy-driven, or whether they're technological, or whether there there's some you know cultural solutions or changes of personal behavior, which might have an effect, might not. We don't know, but I think that's important to cover. And you know, at least that's where a lot of my thinking goes. I would say now when I'm thinking about climate change stories. And this, you're speaking to young people, young journalists, and you think back on the teachers and the writers or, or colleagues that have been uh, important to you. I mean, uh, what, what, who are some of those and uh, what are the, some of the important lessons that you learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, you know, different journalists, some journalists have gone to journalism school. I didn't. I just worked at doing stories at, at places like the New York Times where, where I write magazine stories, longer stories, and, and doing books. But, you know, certainly there's there's some tremendous journalists working at the, I guess, the more scientific journals like Science and Nature. One person who really comes to mind is, is certainly like a just, I think, one of the great environmental journalists of our time is Elizabeth Colbert, who, you know, as we know, wrote, you know, a very early New Yorker story called The Climate of Man. There was a sort of epic cataloging of, of where we were headed. And I think think a, a really, you know, prescient piece that, that really is, is just remarkable. There are wonderful, you know, other environmental journalists, you know, or, or nature journalists, such as David Quammen, who comes to mind. Somebody I just had the chance to meet last year, who's who's really one of the, the, the great, I think, nature environmental, I, I don't know if I'd call him an environmental journalist, but certainly one of the great journalists, but also one of the great nature journalists is John McPhee who's been writing about nature in the United States and abroad for, for decades, also at The New Yorker. So th those are some people who come to mind immediately. But, you know, there's there's also a tremendous number of, of journalists who are just really covering the story every day at newspapers and on television. And they, as, as we say here in the U.S., they push the ball forward every day by enlightening us to whatever might be happening from day to day. And those are journalists that 
you know, New York Times, LA Times, ABC News, NBC News, the BBC, all over the world too that are that are that are really on the story. And I might just add that one thing that's been really exciting to watch is that I think I wrote my first climate change story maybe 15 years ago or 16 years ago. And since that time, just the number of people writing stories or writing long features, in-depth features, I think has really kind of expanded tremendously. And I think that's that's been a tremendous help, I think, in terms of understanding the nature and scope of the problem as well as the solutions. Yes, it's it's true. It's become so, well, it, it's good that it's become mainstream at the forefront of our mind. And I guess in there's another sad part of that too. It's because it's really on our doorstep. So I think, you know, in closing, as you think about the future, uh, education, uh, the environment, uh, technology, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Hmm. I mean, I, I think one thing I think really worth saying is is that, you know, we're presented with a problem that, is really difficult, but that is solvable in terms of climate change. And that's something worth remembering. How we solve it is not yet understood. <laughs> but the fact that we can solve it through policy, through technology, through changes in group behavior seems obvious to me. And I, I think that's sort of the great challenge of the next 30 years is sort of how, how, how are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to mobilize people and our politicians to do that? Where journalism and writing fits in, and I don't think it's just that. I, I think there's art and there's music, and there's a part in my book about Greenland, for instance, where I noted that you know some, some of the things we can do to sort of motivate people or reach people are not actually verbal. Sometimes they're just visual. And, you know, Travel is tough. I mean, you don't want to get a lot of people on ships in the Arctic that are disturbing the environment and, and sort of leaving large carbon footprints. But I, I think that if there's a way to, to raise consciousness with integrity, and that doesn't mean you have to be an advocacy journalist. You could just be doing straight journalism, reporting on what you see. But it all makes a difference. It educates us. It helps us understand the world, especially with places like Greenland or like Antarctica or like these very distant places in Canada or Australia that are going through terrible heat waves. For those of us who have the opportunity to do those kinds of stories or artworks or reports, they're very valuable because we act as, I think, the eyes and ears, and we act as representatives or emissaries who can bring back that knowledge and say, you know, hey, this is what I saw, and this is worth paying attention to. And if we can pay attention, I think we can at least kind of move forward. Well, exactly. I, I shouldn't say advocacy. I think that by the fact of your bearing witness, as you say, you can't help but have a point of view, and, and others would come to that uh, solution or come to that opinion. So thank you, John Gertner, for all you do in your journalism to illuminate contemporary issues, the process of discovery and innovation, and in your books to explore our past so we can better understand the present and take an active role in our future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your commitment to make it a better place for future generations. Thank you so much, Mia. It's a pleasure being on the show. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lila Muskowski with the participation of collaborating universities and students. 
associate producers on this podcast were Lila Muskowski and Panasara Jajunkit. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.